0: This trailer for our new Christmas series that we are starting right now. He'd send a sign. Marge is right. The rapture isn't coming. There haven't been any ominous signs. Send me a sign. 31% of us, it turns out, believe in astrology. Smite me! Almighty oh, smiter! Are we alone? Well- it's a sign Tommy that most important of Christmas symbols just give me a sign I'm a Sagittarius which probably tells you way more than you need to know the omens or signs signs okay. sign to let me today, and I don't think it's much different than in Jesus' day, is looking for a sign, waiting for a sign, some kind of supernatural message or tip about direction or love or loss. Are you placed in your life where you're going, God would just give me a sign? As I began a couple months ago now, we start planning um, Christmas uh, in August and September here. I started thinking about the Christmas story, and I, I started hearing, I almost bombarded by family and friends talking about signs, looking for signs, hoping for a sign. I have some friends that, that come to Mendham, uh, and uh, um, my friend, her, her name's Lisa. Lisa had a tough diagnosis, and she was struggling with some, some health issues, and I prayed for her one Sunday morning out in the foyer. And uh, I, I, I prayed that the Lord would come and he would heal her and that he would show her in very tangible, unmistakable ways his presence and that he would give her peace. And that's kind of a go-to prayer for me because um, I, I really believe that like if we can feel the tangible presence of Jesus, like it makes it a little easier to walk through broken places in our world. Now, I pray that prayer a lot, and so, you know, it didn't seem at the time anything out of the normal or remarkable to me, but church was over, and Lisa was going home, and she was going to a family gathering at her grandmother's house. Now, her grandmother no longer lives in that same house. It's owned by someone else, and uh, as I understood it, she was going back to kind of relive memories. You know how we all long to go back to where the, the homes of our youth and look through them and see what it would look like, and that's what they were going to do. And Lisa said the tour was great. They remembered things in each room, places where they had had fun with her grandmother, and they headed back outside when it was over. And on the way to the end of the driveway, Lisa had this feeling that she should just turn back one last time and look at the place. kind of burn it into her memory. But as she turned back around, it wasn't the house that caught her eye, it was the owner's car, specifically, actually, not just the owner's car, it was the, the license plate on the uh, car, which basically was staring her straight in the eye, and the license plate read, Lisa, 411. Now, if you're old enough, you remember that 411 was the in, the number, the telephone number for information. And so Lisa kind of excitedly said, you know, the, the prayer came hurtling back to me, God's tangible presence. She said it was like God would say, hey, Lisa, for your information. This year I've been restudying the Christmas story, and I've come to see an entirely new element in it that I never really focused on before. The stories of Jesus' birth in the scriptures, the narratives contained there, actually reference the, what's happening in the Christmas story As signs, the prophets spoke of a virgin giving birth. It would be a sign. The angels came to the shepherds and they said, this will be a sign. The more I studied it, the clearer the message became. Christmas actually is maybe more than any other thing. One giant billboard sign. And maybe it's, it's the sign that you've been looking for your whole life. Let me show you what I mean. We're going to be studying the signs of Christmas over the next couple of weeks, I'd love if you have a friend, I guarantee you're going to have a friend this week now that's going to say, I'm just looking for a sign and you're going to hand them a Christmas Eve invite card. Let me show you what I mean. Y- you know the story, uh, many of you. In fact, sometimes because we know we're so familiar with the story, it loses its power. But, but Luke was a first century uh, doctor. And Luke wrote one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these are the four books in the New Testament where we get most of our information on the life of Jesus. So Luke, he opens his work and he states, I want to tell you why I'm writing this book. He says, this is quoting right of Luke chapter 1, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Luke himself was not an eyewitness. Luke himself did not know Jesus, but he set out to get a historical account to write one. He he continues, with this in mind, since, listen to this now, I myself have carefully investigated everything. I've really looked into this. I decided to write an orderly account for you. In fact, he addresses it to a man named Theophilus, most excellent Theophilus, so that you could know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. And then Luke begins to tell the story we're familiar with. He says, It came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all of the world should be registered. So everyone went to be registered to his own city. Joseph went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. I'm not breaking any new ground here. I know that. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now Luke, he just kind of fast forwards the story. That's that's the story. Next verse, he immediately changes scenes on you. Remember, he's looked into this. He's gone and he's talked to the eyewitnesses. He's not just kind of coming up with this. This is a historical account based on factual evidence. This is what Luke discovered. He says, Now there were, in the same country, shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. This is why if anybody comes to you and says, I think I heard from the Lord, You should probably say, no, you would be really certain, I think, if you did. Um, Then the angel said to them, don't be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Okay, most of us know that story. Have you caught this next line? And this will be the sign to you. Looking for a sign. This will be a sign to you. The birth of Jesus is in some way a sign to all of you. Not just the birth of Jesus g- generically, though, but there is something very specific about the circumstances of Jesus' birth that would be a sign to this specific audience of shepherds. Now, you can imagine at that point, if, you were, if I was a shepherd in that field abiding at night, I would not need another sign. An angel of the Lord had appeared to me in the field. The glory of the Lord had shown around me, and I probably need clean underwear, right? I don't need another sign. That was enough for me. They're scared. They're thinking, I got it. No more signs. But the angel speaks of one, a specific one, just for them. Here it is. He says, this will be a sign unto you. Here's the sign. You're going to find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. Well, that's not all that shocking a sign, really. I mean, if I was a shepherd, I'd be thinking the angels in the field were a better sign than that. I mean, I'd be going, geez, what kind of sign is that? This is a better sign, having the glory of the Lord out in the middle of a dark field. What kind of sign is a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger? And and what kind of message are you trying to send to me? See, here's what I've come to believe about this sign. I'm not sure you've ever seen this sign before. I haven't really focused on it until I started working on it. It really is going to blow your mind if you stick with me through it. Here's what this sign is about. It's a sign about what God thinks about you. Have you ever wondered what God thinks about you? What does God think about when God thinks about John or Mike or Mary or Doug? I mean, what he thinks about you? Is he pleased with you, or is he angry with you? Is he happy with you, or disappointed with you? And and I guess my premise is that this is a pretty big deal if you think about it, because what I think God thinks about when he thinks about me, it impacts how I live, the choices I make, how well I sleep at night, for example. I mean, after all, if you think about it, every religion is basically tied, underpinned to this concept. The religions all come out of this concept. What does God think about you? And the answer to that question, here's here's my premise for this morning, the answer to what God thinks about you, that question is given by this sign. A baby in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Now, we hear that and go, huh? But the shepherds, completely understood it see we've just become so accustomed to the story right I don't know if you're like me every time somebody reads that story I feel like I hear Linus reading it you know with the lisp and all the rest how many of you guys have a manger set at home raise your hand right major set we put ours up this week and see pr- the problem is because we're so familiar with the Linus reading in our manger set that we miss the sign because because the sign is common and we don't understand it. When we read the, the, the story, for example, why, why are Mary and Joseph out uh, in a barn, in a sense? Well, because there was no room where? At the inn. Now, let's put our thinking caps on and journey with me back to the first century. You are on a long pilgrimage with your nine-month pregnant wife and you are coming to an inn. Now, in your mind, is this like... A best Western thing, right? Like there's a sign, you know, vacancy flashing in the front. Because the reality is there wasn't. But that's, we've just kind of gotten used to that saying there was no room in the inn. That word inn in the Greek, the New Testament is written in Greek and translated into English. That word inn in the Greek is not the word for a hotel or a boarding house. It's the room, it translates actually just guest room. There was no room in the guest room. And so what most scholars believe is, in the first century, when when you were on a journey like this, you would have planned it out to stop at certain places along the way, often at the homes of relatives. So it's likely Joseph is showing up at the home of a relative, and when he gets there, he finds out, my guest room is already filled. I don't have any weirdo room to offer you. And so, because the guest room is is full, what likely happened is they they were... Given the ability to go down to the lower room, it's actually the same room for that guest room, is the same word that Jesus actually uses later when he tells the disciples to gather in the upper room. These these travelers, Mary and Joseph, were probably offered the lower room, which was, for most of these families, where they kept their animals, down below, oftentimes in a cave. Now those shepherds, this is really what's fascinating... The shepherds, lots of scholars believe that these shepherds are not merely generic shepherds because the sign doesn't really make sense until you understand what kind of shepherds they likely were on this Judean hillside. They were not generic sheep watchers. They were what was referred to as Levitical or priest shepherds. Now, a Levitical or a priest shepherd had a very specific job. They weren't just tending sheep. They were watching over the temple sheep. If you remember in Jerusalem, there's a sacrificial system and at Passover time, you were to offer a lamb, a clean lamb, a lamb without blemish to God for the forgiveness of your sins. These Levitical shepherds, it was their job to watch over the Passover lambs, the sacrificial sheep that were going to be offered in the temple destined to become Passover lambs. These Levitical shepherds didn't just stumble into this job. They were chosen from the time they were young to be the ones who were assigned to keep watch over the temple flocks. And one of their primary tasks, because these were temple sheep, was to make certain that none of the lambs were blemished while being birthed. Because a blemished lamb was not a sacri- was not a-, a good enough sacrifice. He couldn't have been used to atone for the sins. Now, how does swaddling cloth make its way into the story. Well, there's a couple of thoughts that are really quite fascinating about this because you'll start to see the sign now. In the first century, when you were going to go on a long journey, the kind of journey that Mary and Joseph were on, these journeys were dangerous. Traveling long distances, you were often met with hardships, trials, and it wouldn't be unusual to find your way into being mugged, beaten, or or killed. Now, in the event of a death uh, in travel, Because of Jewish burial laws and customs, you couldn't just kind of put the body on the back of the donkey. You would have to bury that body within 24 hours. And so what most travelers did to ensure that they were allowed to do that is they would travel with what was referred to as swaddling cloths to wrap the corpse in before before burying them. You, You see, in fact, there's a picture of Jesus... Here, you you see, most of the time we have Jesus, like, in pampers, you know? Um, And so this is really a more accurate representation of what what was going on. Jesus was likely wrapped in these strips of linen that Joseph had been traveling with along, uh, you know, in case something happened. Swaddling cloths. Now, you want to get crazier? I'm going to give you another sign. According to the Mishnah, which was a written collection of Jewish oral traditions, these temple lambs were immediately upon birth. Remember, these shepherds were there to guard the temple lambs to make sure that they weren't injured in any ways. These these temple lambs were immediately upon birth in order. You know what a lamb does when it's born? I didn't either. But apparently, it starts flipping around, and it injures itself. It's not uncommon for it to do something that harms it. Well, if the, if the lamb starts flopping around and hurts it itself, it is no longer going to be good for sacrifice. So do you know what the temple shepherds would do when a lamb was born? They would wrap the sacrificial lamb in swaddling cloths. In fact, a lot of first century scholars believe uh, they would tell you that most of those swaddling cloths were actually taken from uh, the robes of rabbis and placed in these caves for events just like this. So if a firstborn lamb was born, there were swaddling claws, the, the strips of cloth from a priest's uh, robe, and you would wrap the sacrificial lamb in the claws. Since there was no room for Mary and Joseph in the house, these young people are allowed to occupy one of these birthing caves in the hillside, You can see it now if you go to the church of the nativity in Bethlehem. You'll see that it's essentially a cave. According to the gospel account, as soon as Jesus was born, Joseph wraps him in swaddling clothes. Now, it's unlikely that Joseph had any understanding of the full significance of the swaddling clothes in which he wrapped the infant Jesus. But to the shepherds... They would have been, it would have been a very dramatic sign to them. Wait a minute, they would have said, This is what we do to preserve and keep pure and holy a lamb for future sacrifice. Oh my gosh. This shall be a sign unto you. In this cave in the Judean hillside, the young Lord of the the universe, he lies in a stone manger, which was where you were to place that firstborn lamb, into the manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes for its protection. This action was taken according to the angel of the Lord to be a sign to the shepherds who would come and visit him. It was offered as a sign to you and I too. The sign is this. Now, I know this might ruin some of your Christmas stories, but, but, but stick with me because this is the truth. The sign is this. This child, the Messiah, had not come to rule. His destiny was not to overthrow Rome. This child was born to die. His heavenly father wanted the world to know the reason that his son was becoming flesh. See, for you and I and the the shepherds and Joseph, this is a giant sign regarding what God thinks about you. If you want to understand what God thinks about you, look to the manger and look to the swaddling cause. I've heard it put this way. I think that the sign, ultimately that that the shepherds were given, is here's what God thinks about you. I just kept in chase. Here's what God thinks. You're in more trouble than you think. But man, you are more loved than you can imagine. You are in more trouble than you think but you are more loved than you could possibly imagine. See, I think, maybe if it was taught to you this way, it kind of was to me. When you're growing up, the story of Jesus is that God sent his son into the world and that bad people killed him. And, and, and that is it, right? Like, there's, a, there's an element of when we're growing up, we're told, well, you know, if, if people were just good, then they wouldn't have killed Jesus and everything would have been fine. But the problem is, people are bad and they killed Jesus. Guys, that's not the sign, and it's not the story. Jesus's birth, life, and ultimately his death are not random. It wasn't like God's up in heaven going, oh, shoot, don't kill him, don't kill him. From the foundations of the earth, this baby was born to die. Why? Matthew, he's another one of these gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Matthew, he tells the story of Jesus' birth, too. And he includes a detail about um, an angel speaking to Joseph about Mary and, and, and Jesus' birth. Here's what the angel said. She'll give birth to a son, and you're going to give him the name Jesus Because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus will save his people from their sins. I think if I didn't give you that line and I asked you why Jesus came, most of us would go, well, he came to forgive us of our sins. And we need to be forgiven of our sins, there's no doubt. And Jesus does forgive people from their sins. But there's something even more powerful in this birth story of Jesus. Jesus does not just forgive sins. Jesus saves us. ...from our sins. And if I need saving, you know what that might mean? It might mean I'm in a little bit more trouble than I think. Because, I mean, being forgiven, I mean, okay, that's good. And, And I've done some bad things, and you're going to forgive me. Well, that's great. But if I need saving, that means I'm in imminent peril of something. I might be in more danger than I think. A lot of times, you know, we tend to think, well, I'm a good person... Right? I haven't killed anybody. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I'm a pastor. Right? I mean, I'm like, there's you, and then there's me. Right? (laughs) I have a a brother-in-law that comes from kind of a different faith background, and and his claim is he was taught growing up that as long as there was, uh, in his tradition it's called a priest, but as long as there was a priest or a pastor in the family, he's going to heaven now too. Um, Just because he married into the family that I'm good, we're good. See, we tend to think that we're good people that mess up now and then. You know, we make a couple of mistakes along the way, and we need forgiveness. Of course I need to be forgiven. I mean, I made a couple mistakes. But what the story, the sign given to the shepherds is, you don't just need forgiveness. You're in much bigger trouble than that. You need saving. Well, from what? The Apostle Paul, he wrote most of the New Testament. He he was not originally a believer. He he never met Jesus when he was alive. He met the resurrected Jesus. He had this encounter with him. Now, Paul is the most righteous guy in Israel. Number one, he's a Jew to begin with, and the Jews believed that because they were God's chosen people, that God was on their side, and they were different than all of the Gentiles, the non-Jews. God would treat them differently because they were a Jew. And Paul Paul would go, not only is God going to treat me different, he's going to treat me even better because not only just am I a Jew, I am the most righteous guy in Israel. But then Paul meets Jesus, and he comes to a whole new understanding of the trouble we're in. He wrote to his fellow Jews and law observers this. He goes, we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. Have you ever felt the power of sin? How many of you on Friday morning in college woke up and said, I'm never having a drink again? (laughs) How many of you have woken up in places where you shouldn't have woken up and said, I'm never doing that again? I'm never cheating again, I'm never doing, you know. But there's something, a work in us, there is a power that, that seems like it's kind of natural inside of us that drives us towards doing things that we know that probably would not be either good for us or in line with God's wishes for us. Sin has power. Paul goes on, he says, as it's written, now listen, stick with me on this, I bolded these because sometimes we can be a little thick and I think Paul's trying to get through There is, say it with me, no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. How many of you feel like you're outside the bounds of what Paul just stated? He leaves very little room here. I mean, we could go back and recap. No one, not even one. No one, no one. All have. No one, not even one. Then he sums it up this way He says, For all have sinned and they fall short. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The power of sin is a problem. It's not like we have a little mistake and we need some forgiveness. We are under the power of sin and we need saving. Do you understand the difference? We are in danger. Why? Here's what I want you to know. And some of you know it. You've experienced it and tasted it. You know what sin does? Sin kills things. Sin kills things. Paul goes on. He put it this way. For the wages of sin is death the payment of sin the result of sin what we get from sin is death now we see this right we one part of sin is the nature that we have we're born into sin so we are separated from god at birth But then, because of that nature we have, we continue on in sin. And what Paul is saying is, sin is a serious issue. Sin is not just, I need forgiving for doing something wrong now and then. What Paul is saying is, no, you're in huge trouble. Look, if you live long enough, you know sin kills things. Some of you have had sin kill your marriage. You know, God's design, God's target, his mark for marriage was that we would forsake all others for better or for worse, leaving all others behind. Two would become one. And what happens? Sin creeps in. Eyes wander. Hearts grow cold. Marriages die. See, sin kills things. I mean, for others, I mean, maybe sin is killing your sons or your daughters or you. You've watched them get us enslaved to addictions, drug, alcohol, pornography. If you know me, you know how much I love Market Street Mission and what they've done. I have spent alone with my children and friends many Christmas Eves at Market Street Mission serving the men there. And I'm telling you, if you make enough friends at the Market Street Mission, we're all going to have one thing in common. Do you know what that is? They're going to die. Because sin enslaves and sin kills. I have lost several men that I have spent Christmas Eves with. Some, I mean, you go on. Some of you sin has killed your finances, lack of self-control, the needing for more and more irresponsible decisions, and the next thing you know, you can't find your way out from under it sin has power and sin kills Paul continues he goes the wages of sin what sin does is kill but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord it's Christmas time and the gift of God at Christmas time is this it's life what sin came to do to kill and destroy God has come to give the gift of life here and now and forevermore the message of the manger is this We are in more trouble than we think, so much so we need saving from the power of something that's killing us, and that saving is going to happen not through the death of a sacrificial lamb, but through the sacrificial death of the very lamb of God, the son of God, Jesus' death on your behalf. God is a good God, and he is a just God, and God is not going to let sin forevermore run rampant in this world or in the world to come. What you and I have done and what we do to each other and even what we do to ourselves, God is a God of justice. He's not going to let sin stand and go unpunished. And since all of us sin, who sins? All of us. All of us are in grave danger of death. The message as a manger is that one has come to take our place, a sacrifice for many. When the author's in the Bible, when they talk about sin, another term that they use for it is often a financial term, when we sin, we not only need forgiveness, but in a sense, when we sin against someone, we need, we need savings, we, we owe a reparation, we need to pay a debt that we create, that we owe. And the story of the manger is that there was one who born who, because he was sinless, owes no debt, who was born spotless, blameless, wrapped in the swaddling clothes, without blemish, and who serves as the ultimate sacrifice and payment for our sins. Paul put it this way. He says, Jesus, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. See, we have a big problem. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. The sign given unto us is we owed a debt we could not pay, and he paid a debt that he did not owe. The sign of the manger is we're in more trouble than we can imagine that our sin issue needs not only forgiving, but saving because it kills and destroys and separates us one from another and from God. It enslaves, it in debts, but this shall be a sign unto you. You are more loved than you could ever know. Here's how Paul signed up, summed up this sign of Christmas. You see, at just the right time, When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for even a righteous person, though for a good person, you know, maybe my sons, my daughter, my wife, for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. How does God demonstrate his love for us? Does he demonstrate it? With a message. I mean, couldn't have Jesus, have you ever thought to yourself, why didn't Jesus just come down and gather everybody around? Hey, come here, come here, come here. You guys come here, come here. You're all forgiven. Now go have fun. Why didn't he do that? Well, number one, there still would have been a debt to be paid, right? There still would be something that we needed to be saved from. But, you know, the truth is that Jesus actually did do that a lot of times when he's in the scripture and he's meeting with somebody, what does he say to them at the end of the meeting? He goes, you know what? Your sins are forgiven. And who believed them? No one. No one. How does God demonstrate his love for us ultimately? Does he do it through material blessing, right? A lot of people, most of the world, oh, I know, I'm blessed. You know why? God demonstrated his love for me in this. I got a Lexus for Christmas. Did you see the Lexus event that's going on right now? But God demonstrates his love in that I have no problems. I've got plenty of money. I never lose my job. I'm always healthy. That's not how God demonstrates his love for us. God demonstrates his love for us. And see, you're in more trouble than you know, but you're loved more than you can imagine. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loved the world so much he sent his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, shall be delivered from the power of sin, from the wages of sin, and he did it all while we were still sinners. God loves you so much, he did all this, not when you believed, not when you were very good, or you prayed, or you're having a good devotion week, or you went on a missions trip, or you finally got your giving up to like a tithe mark. The sign of the swaddling clothes and the manger is that you and I are in more trouble than we think, but we are more loved than we can imagine because while we were yet sinners, God chose to do this long before you chose him, he chose you. You know when he did this? You know when he chose you? When you were doing what you did last night that drove you to come to church today. (laughs) While you were doing what you were doing back in college, where you were cheating on that test, cheating on that spouse, understating your income, setting your eyes on things you shouldn't, right then, God sent his son. The sign of the manger and the swaddling clause is that before you chose him, He chose you. Jesus was not randomly killed. Jesus was sent to die and the message is clear. We haven't just made a couple of mistakes. We're in bigger trouble than we might have thought, but we are loved more than you could ever imagine because while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. But you have to believe, listen to me now, this gift this forgiveness, this cancellation of debts, it is activated by faith. Faith is what makes it come to life. Faith is that grace is the means we are saved, not by works, but, not, but by grace, unmerited favor. But we activate that gift in our lives through faith and belief and trust. What you believe about what God thinks about you is going to change the way you live. Let me explain to you what I mean. I was trying to think about this. How can I kind of get this across? Well, I could give you two, two things. The other night, my family and I were going to go out. It was uh, Thanksgiving Eve. You know how everybody goes out on Thanksgiving Eve? All the kids? I still think I'm part of that crowd, so I go out on Thanksgiving Eve too and hold on to that. And, uh, and we were heading out, and my brother in law, Chris, was there. And Chris is about six foot five or six and 280 pounds. And I looked at him and I thought, well, we're not going to have any problems out there tonight, are we, right? Because I'm with him. But, so I walked a little different when I walked out. But, but, you know, I really started to understand it when I thought about, when I thought about my wife. Um, see, my wife really loves me. Now, you're probably just like me wondering why. Um, oftentimes, I, I ponder it. But the fact that she loves me My family even laughs at this. They can't figure it out. Why does this woman love you so much? And see, they know me, and they can't figure it out either. My wife loves me so much, and I don't know why, but but, but I'm so confident in it that it has changed the way I live. I'm so confident in her love for me. It makes, for example, I am so confident confident in her love for me, it makes me think I'm a better-looking man than I actually am. I really do feel that way. I must not be as bad as what I see looking back in the mirror because this girl likes me. It changes the way it makes me walk with a little bit more of a swagger. I remember when I was in college at Rutgers and the kid across from me was on the football team and that was kind of a big story because Rutgers, well... Let's not talk about Rutgers football, that's another issue. But he was on the football team, and uh, he was in the hallway, and I was in the hallway, and Joan was coming to visit. And here comes Joan walking down the hall, and here comes this beautiful blonde girl coming to hang out with me. And I just remember the kid that was looking across the hall, uh, the kid, the football player, he looked at Joan, and then he looked at me and said, oh, dear God, and he went back in his room. (laughs) And while that hurt for a moment... It did make me walk with a little bit more swagger around school. Do you see the attractive girl that likes me? I must be worth something because I was so sure of how how she loved me. It changed what I thought about myself. See, I was so sure about how much she loved me. It changed the way I, I walked through school. You know, I had that. Who's the fighter? You know, the, uh, the ultimate fighter guy that's got the thing? <laughs> it changed the way I walked. What's his name? Somebody? McGregor. I had the McGregor walk ro- rolling through. See, I was so sure and i am so sure about how she loves me. I, I don't worry that she's going to leave. I-, I don't worry that she's going to be disappointed and find Another. See, the message of the manger is that, geez, we're in a lot of trouble. But gosh, if you understood how loved you were, it would change your whole life. What if you believed and had faith and trusted that God loved you this much that he sent his son, not randomly, it's not like things went bad and he got crucified, he sent his son born to die for you. See, I walked around like McGregor because the girl was cute. What's it look like to walk around believing God loves me, chose me? That's the signs of the manger. And the signs of the manger culminate and point to the cross, Now, I know it's Christmas, and I know this is an unpleasant picture. But this, guys, this is the sign. We are in more trouble and more danger than we thought. Sin kills, it steals, it destroys. But this is how much you are loved. Can you imagine how you would live your life differently if you understood the power of sin? I have a friend that was trying to wrestle with Christianity and he said to me recently, he goes, well, I don't understand. Why don't I just do what I want and ask for forgiveness and then I can do what I want and ask for forgiveness and I can do what I want and then I can ask for forgiveness. And going, because you don't understand how much trouble you're in. Because sin kills. But you're so loved. More than you could ever imagine. As the band comes up, when you walk around, when you see from now on, when you put your manger up, Start to think through it, man. There was likely some swaddling claws, some strips of a priest's robe tucked away in a corner, in a cave. And this beautiful baby was born and wrapped in grave clothes. And this will be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. You and I are in more trouble than we thought but we're more loved than we can imagine. And this Christmas, if you've never done it before, this Christmas, understand this is not some ancient fable. Luke said, I'm writing to you a very deal. like I went and talked to the eyewitnesses. This is how this went down. I spoke to the shepherds. They said the angels appeared, and they said this is gonna be a sign. Here's the sign. You're gonna find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, and they said, oh my gosh, the sacrificial lamb of God born to take away the sins of all people.